0: This is the Financial Freedom Series designed to show you how to cash flow your way to financial freedom. Brought to you by Lagos Financial. The road to financial freedom starts today. All right, we are back with the Financial Freedom Series. My name is Andrew Bean and I'm here with top mortgage broker and financial expert, Victor Lagos from Lagos Financial. How are you, mate? I'm good, Andrew. How are you, mate? I'm fantastic, buddy. How's everything going in the world of finance? I must say, it's definitely been much better since we haven't had
1: rate rises the last few months. It was tough trying to keep on top of all those change of rates and policies and lenders, but now... I mean, it's also spring, so people are out there buying property. People want to get property, and it's just a matter of can they borrow the money? So at the moment, they can. Yeah,
0: that's it. I don't think we're out of the woods yet with interest rate rises or even interest rate drops. But yeah, definitely more listings now. It's spring, so it's really good to see.
1: Definitely. Even for commercial property, I'm finding people that I was talking to months ago are actually finding the properties, the right prices. So got a lot on the go at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, like the interest rates where they are now, like a six and a half, even like a seven percent interest rate on a commercial property is actually on average like where interest rate should be. And just because you have a higher interest rate right now, doesn't mean that's the interest rate you have to have for the whole life of that property. You can refinance. You can do lots of things.
1: Definitely. And you're looking at cash flow from today. But yeah, like you said, it's not going to be that forever. So when rates drop, cash flow will improve. When rents go up, cash flow will improve. So if the numbers work today, then hopefully they'll actually get stronger over time.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think people are baselining like interest rates today on where they went. So like how low they went, because that was like a record low. That was very unusual. You know, we may never get back there in our careers. That was actually the unusual part, how low interest rates went. And this is actually more of a normal market where you know you can get good deals, a six percent return or interest on uh, property is actually like not bad. Like it's, you shouldn't be afraid of it right now.
1: Yeah, no, agreed. More we get used to it, people will adapt to this time. Yeah, moving forward.
0: All right, man. So today I wanted to have a chat about getting finance approved and where it can all go wrong in the process. So in terms of like the most common reasons loan applications get rejected. And how applicants can mitigate these risks of like why applicants get rejected?
1: Yeah, look, it depends, I guess, on the broker and their experience with how many deals or how many applications have actually they've worked on over their career and how much due diligence they put in to their own assessments before they apply on behalf of the customer. So a lot of the time, if the data is all correct, So meaning all your address history is correct, your employment history, your expenses are close to what the banks expect them to be. You supply all the documents that they ask for, then really it shouldn't get the client. It's just a matter of going to the right lender for your situation. But what I've seen probably from my own experience where things don't go the way I plan, it's due to the complexity of the way they do their tax returns. And that's if someone's self-employed. Because an accountant will write off as much as they can and they will, you know, obviously show a certain amount of income. And over the last few years, there has been government subsidies and grants and things like that to help people. And what I've found from my own experience is that some banks will deduct those one-off incomes and revenues and deduct that from the net profit. So it's not a matter of getting declined, but more just not getting approved for the amount you apply for, which is basically like getting declined, right? So if you're buying if you need six hundred grand but the bank only approves four hundred, well, what's the point of approving four hundred because you need a six hundred for that particular transaction, right?
0: Yeah, it does make sense. So like say like during COVID when businesses were getting a bit of help from the government and their revenues were down. And so they weren't able to work. They weren't able to get like the higher revenues that they would usually get. And then the bank doesn't even capture what the government was giving out to businesses anyway. It's a bit of a slap in the face really because like, well, if we were operating properly at at, like 100% capacity, we would have earned that money anyway. And we wouldn't be even talking right now. But because of the situation, wow, it's just almost like shading on rent.
1: Yeah, that's why you need to navigate it properly because some banks are actually understanding of that. So they'll look at, say, the previous year and say, okay, well, that previous year when you had no grants, there was no pandemic, you earned X amount, and the year after, you obviously weren't able to work, you had to shut shop for a period of time. So as long as it sort of shows that pattern of recovery in the most recent financial year, then they'll kind of accept it. But others are like, nah, blanket rule, nah, can't look at it, it was one-off, it's not going to continue, and that brings down the average. That's a challenge. It's obviously something you have to navigate. But also just when someone's got multiple entities, sometimes it can be quite complex to track the money. And it's easy to sometimes double up because money gets paid from one company to another, to another trust. And sometimes you think that, you know, you've got, oh, just 60 grand here, is another 60 grand there. But really it was the same 60 grand, right? So you have to be spending time checking it properly to make sure that, you know, showing more income than you actually is. And then... But in terms of decline, so what I've from, I guess, maybe more inexperienced brokers or even inexperienced customers that have got credit issues. So they might end up going, applying for a payday loan. So someone that's going to give them capital straight away and then they'll pay it back with their next paycheck. That's a red flag. If you've got them on your credit file, that could be a decline, even though that would just for a particular window of time that you needed it. That could be a decline. So something like that could affect you. A default that you've had on your credit file from a few years ago, you know, that was an also a period of time where you weren't able to make your payments. And it's still on your file. So that could also be a decline. But again, you can find this stuff out before you even hit go and cover that off with your comments, get an okay from the bank. I try to do that. You know, you get a credit scenario, you send it to the bank and say, look, this is the situation. This is the strength. Can you approve it based on this situation? And then they'll say, yes, subject to full assessment. And if we have that, then we should be good to apply for the loan.
0: It's no secret that getting finance for a commercial property can be a difficult task. If you're looking for a rockstar mortgage broker to kickstart your financial freedom, well, look no further. My man, Victor Lagos from Lagos Financial has you covered for all of your commercial financing needs. Go to lagosfinancial.com.au that's l-a-g-o-s financial.com.au for a free consultation to get you on the path to financial freedom today. So mate, how do different types of loans such as like personal, business or mortgages differ with the approval process?
1: Probably more than anything else it 's the, the time frame it takes to get approved. I guess the larger amount you apply for, the longer it can take because there 's more moving parts it 's more risk to the bank also there 's a larger asset so if you 're purchasing a property, obviously there 's going to be a mortgage required, there might already be a mortgage because somebody owns the property, so they have to value the property that can take time. But if it was a car, for example, you know cars they 're quite easy to determine if they're real or not. You just do a PPSR search, security property search to see if it exists, the VIN search. And then the money can really, you know, exchange hands within a couple of days. But property as well, there's contracts. And those contracts have settlement periods, which can take six weeks sometimes, even longer. But the approval itself, depending how good you are with the data you present to the bank, you can get approvals in a few days with some banks. And Some lenders actually can take longer. They can take a week or two. And it all depends on how much volume they have, what their turnaround times are to process that. But yeah, it all just comes down to, I think, complexity, amount they're borrowing, the type of asset they're buying, and also even the type of customer. If you're self-employed, it's going to take a bank longer to come up with a credit decision versus someone that's PAYG.
0: Yeah, it blows my mind that like how easy it is to get car finance. Obviously for the bank, that's an asset to them because they're writing a loan. The loan is an asset to them, but to the actual borrower, the car is a liability unless you're using it to make money through Uber driving or like doing deliveries and stuff like that for like Amazon. If the bank was like going to lend money to you, basically they trying to lend to you for the best type of asset for your particular finances, it would be flipped around it would be like, okay, let's buy you a house because that's going to make you a lot more money in future because it's going to have time in the market. It's going to appreciate over time. It's going to be a real great asset to you. Obviously, like the values are way different in terms of like the other side. It's like, let's get you a car. Let's make sure you have huge, like big repayments for that car. And it's a liability. It's a depreciating asset and it will not grow your wealth at all. It's just really funny how like the difference in a liability to an actual asset, which they're happy to loan the loan process quicker to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can see why you can look at it from that angle, right? The more you benefit, the longer it can take and the harder it is, right? Yeah. (laughs) But for them, the lender, they benefit and they'll turn it over quickly because that just means income straight to their bank, whatnot. Yeah, I can see that angle. But look, I don't think that's a deliberate thing. I think it's just a matter of a lot more moving parts required, for a property, it's more complex. There's mortgages, there's other interest on there. Different banks already have an existing mortgage on there versus a car that's like, you know, you're buying from a dealership, it's a clear title. You just register, a, you know, an interest when you buy it and it, it's nice and quick. And also the availability of capital. That's another thing. The reason why car loans get approved so quickly and a lot of the time it's less documentation, it's because it's, we're not talking about a lot of money here, right? Thirty, forty, fifty grand, it might be a lot to a lot of people. But to a lender, it's not, right? They lend out billions of dollars. Mm. Whereas when you're lending millions of dollars for, for a property, yeah, it's a larger sum. There's more rules around making sure that they're gonna get their money back with interest. Because they don't lend out their own money, right? They borrow it. So if the moment it defaults, everybody loses.
0: Yeah, of course. So with like car loans, obviously with property there's also a location aspect as well. Like some banks will only loan to certain locations. With a car loan, that probably doesn't apply, does it, at all? Because a car moves.
1: It doesn't apply in terms of location, but it does apply in terms of the asset itself. So what I mean by that is most lenders for car finance will have a age restriction. So you can't go and finance like a 1980s car or a 60s car because it's too old for them the resale is difficult. So they might have at the end of the loan term, the car must maximum be 10 years old. They don't really care about kilometers. I think that'll be very hard to track, mm. but they do look at if it's private sale, if it's dealership sale, how old the car is and whether the car is going to be for business use or personal use. All of that will come into, into the equation and some it's just a blanket rule. If the car is too old, we won't lend against it and others will be flexible. So yeah, it's not the same as property because I, I did experience that recently with a with a client wanting to buy in in South Australia, and it's in a sort of regional town, and lenders consider it a Category Four location. So what that means is that it's, it's obviously it's not metro. If you think Cat One, Category One, Category Two, Three, so Four is like the bottom of the pile. There's not much uh, population at all. There's not much industry there. So reselling the property would be difficult if it defaulted. And if it's reliant on tenants to pay them the rent in order to cover the mortgage, then reletting it would be difficult as well. So that's why they look at location.
0: Yeah, of course. So mate, how long does it usually take like typically from loan approval to actually seeing the funds in your bank account?
1: Honestly, it can be a very quick process. So the main thing you have to do is sign loan documents once it's approved. If it's a property, and you would have seen this, some of the listeners, if you've bought in a company or a trust, there's a lot more documents required. You have to get legal advice, you have to get financial advice, there's guarantor documents, there's witnessing documents, they need wet signatures, you need to post it back, needs to be checked. All that process can take a little while, but if you're good at paperwork, you can do it in a day, send it back by express post, it can be checked and then good to go. Then it just comes down to aligning the date with the seller to sellers ready to receive the funds. And obviously, they've probably got a mortgage as well they need to pay out so that their lender needs to be ready to receive the funds. That can take from approval to settlement can be days and it can also be weeks depending on when everyone else is ready. With a car or a personal loan, you know, it could be same day. It's all electronic now. A lot of the time you sign documents. If it's, you know, DocuSign and they transfer the money, you experienced that with your car, right? The money was paid the same day it was approved pretty much. Yeah, a couple crazy.
0: of days after. Yeah, I wish property finance was as quick as car finance because I was shocked how quick and easy car finance was. I mean, look, it's no wonder that there's a cost of living crisis. Everyone's driving a brand beautiful new car. I have never really had a really nice car and I still have just a average Hyundai Santa Fe. It's like a 2017 model. There's nothing full flashy. It's just uh, gets the job done. It's just nice and has a bit more room. But previously, we were driving like older cars. But like everyone now has a really nice new car, so I'd say about a five to six hundred dollar payment per month, like just on their car loan. So it's no wonder that people have so much debt now and extra like cash they need every single month, let alone to be able to buy a property and put a mortgage on it. It's just crazy.
1: Yeah, I'm working on one at the moment where these clients came to me and they want to buy another investment property. They've got four at the moment and they're looking at buying the fifth Mm. and they're pretty squeezed for borrowing capacity but i noticed that they've got two car loans under their names totaling about 40 grand approximately maybe a bit more and the repayments are like that exactly what you said 600 dollars or whatever it is per month but because we've got equity on their properties we can consolidate them so that's what we're doing we're actually just paying out the car loans with 40 grand of equity and then we're using the rest of the equity to come up with a deposit to buy another property. People don't realize how much of an impact it has on them at the time. They want the car, they want the convenience, they want to look good when they're driving yeah. on the road. But then when they want to grow their portfolio or set themselves up for the future, it can be hindering them. So hopefully they've got enough equity in one of their properties that they can consolidate at some point. Otherwise, you're stuck with the car loan for you know five to seven years. But if your repayments are low and you're not borrowing that much or you come up with a big deposit, a couple hundred bucks a month, whatever it is, 300, 400, it's not going to have a massive impact on your
0: borrowing. Yeah, because you know? the, the reason they would do that, and I, I can basically break it down, is because the equity that they've drawn out is at like a 6% interest rate, let's say. That's probably what it is around that, Victor. And then the car loan is at like 10 or 15% interest So, it makes sense to use the cheaper money to pay that car loan down so you're paying less interest even though you're still like borrowing money to pay the car down but it's like half of the interest. So, obviously, that would be better.
1: Yeah. Also, the term that you have to repay it. When you take a car loan out, as I said earlier, the maximum you can get is say five to seven years and that's because the asset is depreciating Mm. It's not going to be worth much. So lenders don't want to hold the debt for too long because it's just not going to be how much of a resale value. Whereas property, it's going to probably go up in value. So that's why they'll give you 30 years because their risk is actually reducing, right? From the bank's perspective, the debt's coming down, the value's going up. So for them, the risk is less and less and you've got a repayment history. So that's why they'll stretch you out for 30 years, no problem. So when you take out equity and you consolidate your car finance, you can stretch it out over 30 years now which brings down your minimum repayment. You can still pay it off in five to seven years. You have the freedom to do that on a variable loan, but the bank's minimum is over 30. So therefore, your serviceability is- Yeah, and
0: what you can do is you take out the equity, you pay down the car loans, and then with the rest of equity, the big chunk of equity, then you buy a cash flowing piece of real estate, then the cash flow from that real estate pays the cars off for you. That's how you do it. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. you get the best of both worlds. That's the way exactly. it's good. So Correct. can you explain some of the common terms and stuff that you hear thrown around by banks and mortgage brokers and let us know like if there's any difference. So is a, a pre-qualified, there's pre-approval and there's approval in principle. Are they all the same thing or do they mean something completely different?
1: Look, it's funny you say that because I used to work for a bank and they had their own acronyms, what things mean. And then became a broker. And then, of course, some of those I still carry, right? And brokers use some too. And because we communicate with banks, we, we yeah. try to you know, use some of them. Example is AIP. So AIP stands for approval in principle. It also means pre-approval. Same thing, synonymous. The two words mean the same thing. But I try when I call my application, when I title them, when the customer sees the name of it, I call it pre-approval. And once they don't see it anymore, I call it AIP because I don't want them to be like, what the hell does this mean? (laughs) It come to me, what's AIP? I'm going to explain it, right? But yeah, essentially it means the same thing. It's approved in principle because it's not fully approved or, and that's another one, unconditionally approved versus formally approved. Those also mean the same thing. It's funny because you can have an unconditional contract of sale on a purchase and an unconditional loan approval but then you can have settlement (laughs) conditions. So technically, it's not unconditional, right? There's still settlement conditions. So the difference is when it's a pre-approval, there's no property. AIP, approval in principle, there's no property. So they've approved your credit history. They've approved your serviceability. They've approved a certain loan amount based on your circumstances, subject to a property. Or in a car, if you apply for a pre-approval for a car, subject to a particular car. So then you need to get the asset and say, here's the actual asset that I'm buying. Can you now give me an unconditional approval or a formal approval? And then assuming that stacks up, then they'll give you the final approval or the formal, final, unconditional. And what was the other one you said? Pre-qualify. So honestly, that doesn't really get used that much in mortgages. Definitely gets used a lot in the personal loan space and car finance, get pre-qualified. Those are like before a pre-approval. So before you even apply for the loan, you can pre-qualify And that's by doing like a credit check or a soft credit check. So they basically look at what your credit score is. Sometimes they'll also do a bank statements integration. So a lot of these fintechs and smaller lenders, they'll actually have an algorithm program that will actually scan Mm. your bank statements and automatically categorize them. And it will flag anything that's negative, like late payments, overdrawn fees, overdrawn account, payday lenders, whatever it is, the things that can be negative. And I also check the salary is consistent, so it's not dropping and whatnot. So that's where you can kind of get a pre-qualified loan because it would check that based on computer algorithm. There's no human checking it. There's no person checking it. And then once you're ready to actually apply, usually it's easier if you've already been pre-qualified because then it's just verifying. Okay, the bank savings was a program telling me yes. Okay, it matches the same. It looks good. Tick, tick, tick. Move on, approved. So it makes it easier. But if there's no algorithm checking all that stuff pre-qualifying, then you'd literally need a human to check it, mm. to go through the statements line by line, to check the pay slips. It takes more time. And obviously, error, big data, if you're looking at 12 months worth of bank statements, person checking it yeah. could be tired, right? They might miss something. <laughs> they might be in a bad mood, whatever, <laughs> from the previous one. So they might have some bias and like, I don't like this, so I'm going to decline it, right? So they're not looking at it objectively. So it's a fine balance for a lender because they want to lend money to make money, but they don't want to take on too much risk to lend money to everyone. So it's like they're saying yes whilst trying not to say yes to everyone. They're saying no while not trying to say no to everyone.
0: With humans, like (laughs) we do have unconscious bias as well. Like you're in a bad mood or things do happen during your day and you see someone's like, he's always going to McDonald's. What's he going to McDonald's again for? Like he's like three times that day. (laughs) You know, stuff is, is <laughs> yeah. declined. can you just explain like in residential property why you can get a pre-approval but with commercial property it's not really the same thing you don't get a pre-approval for a commercial property
1: yeah okay so the main reason for residential that you can get a pre-approval is because there's certain simple rules that they can put in place to accept the property as security it's not too complicated it's either an owner-occupier or an investment, it's either in desired location or it's not. Of course, if it doesn't fit the mold and it's a different type, whether it's uh, you know primary production, you know rural, it's got an element of commercial into it, then it's usually a blanket rule decline. Don't accept it. It's not our type of security, or it's too large, whatever. So a lot of it comes down to the actual individuals borrowing the money. So. Because houses, if they admit uh, properties, houses, units, whatever, as long as they fit those particular parameters, then it's going to be approved on the property. They don't need to kind of dig too deep per property to figure out whether they'll lend the money. The bigger credit decision comes down to the individuals applying for the loan or the guarantors. So their credit history, like we talked about employment history, the consistency of their income, all that sort of stuff. So that's why they can give a pre-approval because the majority of the decision lies there. But when you're buying commercial, it's less reliant on the individuals. That's why people set up SPVs or special purpose vehicles they set up trusts, companies to own the assets. Usually it's it's an investment, but they're not needing to put so much of their own money to maintain the loan repayments, right? They're collecting rent from another tenant to cover that. Unless it's an owner-occupier. If you're a business and you're trading from that particular premise, then yeah, look, the pre-approval would be probably in your favor because a lot of the decision is going to be on your ability to repay the loan. But for an investment, it's going to come down to the asset. Is it a riskier asset? Is it a specialized asset or a regular commercial property? Is it a, in an office? Is it industrial or retail? And then, more importantly, what are the lease terms? Who's the tenant that's actually renting this property? And what's their history of paying their rent on time and their history in business. So you're not gonna know that. If you apply for a pre-approval, you don't know any of that stuff. So in a way, there's a term that it's not worth the paper it's written on. That's essentially what that is. If you apply for a pre-approval for a commercial property, it's not worth the paper it's written on. It doesn't mean anything because the moment you give them a property, they are like, no, nah, it doesn't. So, but I'm pre-approved, so what? <laughs> and especially if you're doing a lease stock loan, right? Lease stock loans don't require anything to do with the individuals. They're there, they approve their identity, but the approval is based on the lease. So that property is what's going to determine if it's going to be approved or not. And the valuation as well, that's another thing. So residential lending, they can rely on AVMs, automatic valuation model, desktop valuations. So it's literally someone on a computer doing a quick search, checking recent sales and curbside. So someone goes out, takes a photo from the outside, make sure the house actually exists, not knocked down or whatever and then they do a bit of data search. Those are less costly. They're much faster to determine. Some of them aren't even like, there's no human involved at all. And then there's a short form valuation. So it's like four pages, whatever, but it still requires a full inspection and that can cost a few hundred bucks. But for commercial property, it's always a long form, which means it's like 18, 20 pages. There's a lot more research and data that goes into it Mm -hmm. to determine certain things. And it's not just comparable sayings, right? It's cap rates, it's cost per square meter, And sometimes just getting the comparables is really difficult because there haven't been recent sales of that type of property. And then the net lettable area they check. So there's quite a lot more information that goes into that. The banks rely on this. The lenders rely on this in order to make their decision to lend on on it. So that's why people typically won't apply for a pre We run the numbers. We make sure that hypothetical rent will allow serviceability. And then if that ticks and we know that their credit history is good, then there's no point in applying for pre-approval. And that's why you always have to have a finance clause. So if you buy commercial property, it's not like residential where you can go in, waive your cooling off, no finance. It's very risky if you do that because it's not many lenders that will do the finance for you and the ones that will may not give you the most favorable terms. So having a finance clause will allow you to get out of the contract in the event that you don't get the finance terms that you're after, loan amount, interest rate, whatever it is, fees, or get declined, right? So you can still get out and get your deposit back. Whereas residential, many people commit because they know they're already pre-approved and then they can just find a good property that's nothing out of the norm and it'll be
0: approved. And the finance clause doesn't actually have to be separate from the due diligence clause. I think we like to separate it sometimes to make it more clear for the opposing party. But in essence, the due diligence, getting the finance and the property should be part of that. But sometimes we have a due diligence clause and then we also have a finance clause as well just to make it a bit more clear i think maybe for the buyer and the seller probably while we do that but it's Mm. it is quite interesting if you have ever tried to run numbers in your cash flow calculator you'll know how important it is to have the right inputs stamp duty alone can vary wildly depending on what state you are buying in that's why you need to know the exact figure Lagos Financial have a full suite of calculators ready for you to start crunching your numbers today. Go check out your borrowing power, budgeting, income tax, refinance calculators, repayment calculators, or my personal favorite, the stamp duty calculator, just to name a few. Go to lagosfinancial.com.au. That's L-A-G-O-S financial.com. To start using these calculators today. So, mate, mm-hmm. some of the red flags or common mistakes individuals make on their application that can delay the approval process, what are they and how can we avoid them?
1: Probably a lot of it's to do with debts and knowing all of them. So, people apply for credit cards, they forget, mm-hmm. they get buy now, pay later, they forget. They consider hex debt an actual debt so they don't type it in when they're filling out their fact fine. This stuff can actually slow down applications because borrowing capacity or capacity to repay, that's one of the fundamental things that if not the most important thing when any lender is approving a loan. Do you have the capacity to repay? It? So any debts that you have need to be accounted for. And a lot of the time it's hard to get the information as easy. That's probably one of the one of the more challenging things, if someone's got a lot of loans, and we need to know what the loan limit is, what the loan balance is, what the interest rate is, what the repayments are, how long the loan term is, what the maturity date is, if it's fixed, when it's coming off of fixed, if it's interest only, when it's coming off interest only, that information sometimes is really hard to get for multiple loans or multiple loan splits. So some people got five loan splits on one loan, mm. and then they got five loans. So that's, A lot of loan splits. (laughs) And each of them, we need that information for all of them. (laughs) So getting that sometimes is tricky. And if they're with like a smaller lender, I experienced this recently actually with a client that is with a lender that's very uncommon. They're a Ukrainian bank. And getting that information was really, really tricky. So we went backwards and forwards for like two weeks trying to get it. And so if you have that stuff up front, and a lot of time you can get it from net banking. Like you just go onto the, you know, your loan summary page. You can do a screenshot of that on your phone app or on the computer. And then you provide that along with the statements, getting the transactional statement history for the most recent month can be tricky as well. At the moment we're in October. And if someone downloaded the most recent loan statement, it will probably get them up to the end of June, right? Beginning of July, but that doesn't cover it. What happens to the last four months? So they need to extract the transaction history to show that their repayments are up to date to show what the current balance is and all that other information I just I mentioned earlier. So, then to get that, they need to extract it as a PDF. So, I always find it funny when I ask for these dates and somebody sends me a spreadsheet, a CSV. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? Do you really think a bank's going to look at a CSV and say, oh, okay, that must be the balance? You can literally go in and type whatever you want in there. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes when you go into net banking and you say, Extract. There's no option to say print to PDF. So that's all you can get. So I understand why people will send that, but logically it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't verify anything. So yeah, that's something that can definitely slow down applications. Uh, what else? Documents. Yeah, look, tax returns. Definitely that's something if you've got multiple entities or even one, if you're a company, you need the last two years worth. And you may not have that at hand. Right? Your accountant has it. So then, now you're waiting for the accountant to send it, and then the accountant might take a while. So having that in nice one clean folder ready to go, I think that will be important when you're ready to apply. Just upload it or email it or whatever it is, and your ATO notice of assessment. They used to post it in the mail. Now they just make it available on MyGov. So just log in, go to ATO portal, and just download it. Yeah, having that ready. Yeah, I think in general just filling out the fact find. So. You know, every broker has got a different process on getting a fact find. And a fact find is just what's your address history, employment histories, asset liabilities, expenses, and your needs and objectives. Like this is a requirement for every application. How to capture that? Mm. It's always a tricky thing for every, every broker, every customer. Not many people like to fill out long forms, but a broker doesn't have the access to that information. You know, unless you want them to sit on the phone with you for an hour or half an hour asking you question by question. I think that's counterproductive. I think you're better off doing it on your own time when you've got some free time and just prepare yourself mentally. Don't know distractions and just say, all right, I'm going to fill this form out from start to finish. Upload all the documents and I'm done. Not dragging out a week or a few days, forgetting about it and then procrastinating it because that can also slow things down for everyone. And then last minute, if it's for a purchase and you got finance due and now everyone's rushing last minute just because they didn't get the information up front.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, you have a great online portal I think when I was filling out finance, when you were doing refinancing for me, I think it took probably about an hour, hour and a half just to get scanned all the documents and put everything in there. But after that, there was a very smooth process. I didn't need to put anything else in there. And and it also probably slowed it down because the property that we were refinancing, I owned that with my fiance as well. So we needed a little bit of documentation from her. That actually brings me to my next point. So when you're co-signing a loan with someone, Does that slow things down? How does the bank view co-signing loans?
1: It can slow things down because you need that fact find information for everyone, not every borrower or every guarantor. And if you don't have that information at hand, so say you're filling out for your wife and you don't know when she started her job. You don't know who her boss is, the contact number. So you need that information. So you need to ask her when you're filling that form out or she needs to log in separately and fill that out for herself. So now you need to navigate that so you're both available to come up with those details. And then when you're estimating your expenses, usually you have one person in the household that knows that and the other one's got no idea. The other one just pays and like (laughs) got no idea what you spend. So then you need to navigate that, right? Because some of the costs you can estimate, other ones they are what they are. You know, fixed costs, bills and whatnot. You know what they are. You just have to dig them up. If you don't have it readily accessible, it takes you time or you need to check with the other co-borrower that actually knows that information, or they're the ones that store all the paperwork. And then, you know, when it comes down to IDing as well. So if you're married and they've had a change of name, that can be a, I've, I've experienced that as a delay many times where, you know, they've changed their name, but they haven't updated their passport. And because they haven't updated their passport, the bank's like, well, what's their actual legal name? Well, the legal name is the, is their married name. Okay, well, where's the evidence? And they, I say, I need a marriage certificate. And then they send me the ceremonial marriage certificate, which doesn't mean anything. That's just, that's just a celebrant or whatever. So I need the one that's you know, yeah, yeah. transferred over at the, the Department of births and marriages. And then sometimes they don't have it. So then they have to go and apply for it, get it. So that's a mission. And middle names. So sometimes people remove their middle name from their driver's license, but it's on the passport or it's on the Medicare or whatever. So now we have to find out what that is, we have Their birth certificate. So it's just got to be consistent. If your name is the same on everything, Make it nice and easy. But general rule of thumb, your legal name will be your passport and your birth certificate. Everything else you can change. You can tell the license, I don't want to have this, make my middle name my, my first name, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then change of name is obviously the next thing that can, can trump that. If you've changed your name legally at the Department of and then we just need a copy of that. And then we can send it to the bank and everyone's happy.
0: So just to confirm your advice, your advice was, If you want to speed up your mortgage application, don't get married and make it a lot faster process so you just have one legal name. Don't even have a partner. Don't even co-sign. So don't have a partner. Don't co-sign. Don't get married. That was the advice. That will make it
1: easier to get the loan approved. The main thing is earn more income like you are two people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then you can keep borrowing of course yeah. We're yeah. just joking yeah, yeah just kidding uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah just yeah. joke get married if you'd like to
1: yeah if you want to change your name that's fine just change it everywhere and make sure it's all consistent on your documents then it'll fly through
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so mate can you just give us a like a rundown of like how external factors like economic factors like such as inflation economic downturns like can really impact the loan approval process as well
1: yeah, so I mean, everyone who was I guess an adult through the global financial crisis would know that during that period of time, 2008 till maybe 2012, I'd say, for that period of time, lending was was really difficult. The rules around it were were changing. Things were getting more strict. Requirements were higher. Capacity to repay requirements were similar to now. Rates were rising. So During periods like that, liquidity in the market is much less available capital. So then they have to be much more, I guess, diligent in who they lend money to. And because the risks are also high in terms of high defaults, then they also need to start checking extra carefully that people information is true and correct and it's not fraudulent. What do they say? Desperate people do desperate things. And desperate times call for desperate measures, right? Sort of similar things. With, so they have to be aware of that, right? They have to be aware of people that are doing things deliberately to deceive and to cheat. And they have to make sure that they're not allowing stuff like that to go through. And they have to look for the ones that are, are actually creditworthy. Because there are going to be people out there that regardless of what's going on in the economy, they're still earning well. They've got cash reserves and they can still make moves. So those are the ones that lenders and banks want to lend money to. It's obviously going to be a premium. So it's usually higher interest rates, risk fees, and things like that. Um, and also mark, players in the market drop out. So there's been lenders and banks that have literally stopped lending. They've said, no more, we're done. Um, and a recent example of that, even in this current time, is Virgin Money. Virgin Money is owned by Bank of Queensland. And out of nowhere, they said we're no longer lending new money. We're like, oh, that's, that came a bit of a shock. And Bank Bank Queensland also bought Me Bank as well. So they're maintaining the MeBank brand and the Bank of Queensland brand, but no more new lending for Virgin Money. So that's a resource that they're cutting back. And now that's that's less money available, less competition, whatnot. And an even more recent example, and I'm letting you know, Andrew, because we haven't actually caught up since this, but about a week and a half ago, Adelaide Bank, who's owned by Bendigo Bank, pulled out of the commercial lending market. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's really annoying because they were my go-to lender for many reasons. Moving forward, I can't use them anymore and no borrowers can access their products anymore. So I don't know the exact cause of that. Could be with the economy, but also could be because they're merging the brand with Bendigo and it's probably trying to consolidate the products and systems. But yeah, that's obviously an impact. So you don't ever know that this bank that you go with, this lender you go with, this guy is going to be around. So you think they are and you proceed like everything's normal, but then all of a sudden at any given time, they can just pull out of the market. Having options is always important to sort of shop around and have backups and go to different lenders that will continue lending. Of course, the big four will probably not go anywhere, but they're the hardest to apply for loans with. And they're probably the most, sometimes the most expensive, depending on the type of transaction as well. But ComBank recorded $10 billion in profit. like So they're not going anywhere anytime soon. But even then, they're cutting costs as well. There's a new movement to automation and to AI. So because of that, there's going to be more and more jobs lost, jobs that don't need to have people to fill them anymore. It's going to be computer programs that do a lot of this Mm -hmm. stuff. And how that will affect the lending environment? Well, I guess only time will tell, but I think it will have to be more and more transparent more than anything else because in order to make decisions from data, well, the data needs to come through in its raw and true form and you can't manipulate it. You can't, you know, not disclose things. You kind of just say, yep, here it is. And am I creditworthy, <laughs> right? That could speed things up for people that are creditworthy, but the ones that are not, well, all you can do is just, yeah, learn, improve your financial position. So then you can apply again in the future.
0: People were so upset with the amount of money that Commonwealth Bank like made as profit. It is a business like they're supposed to profit like, I'm not sure like exactly yeah. the ins and outs of it. Yeah. If they're making money, that's what they're there to do. If they weren't making money, they wouldn't be around. Bank is just a business, that a very good business that is there to make money regardless of whether they're charging yeah. higher interest rates than other banks. If people are willing to pay those rates, then they'll keep charging them. You know what I mean? So it's just like any other business. They're there to make yeah. as much profit as exactly possible. Exactly right.
1: And you as a consumer or a borrower, you can leverage debt to put you in a better position. You don't have to take out debt to put you in a worse position. It's available to you, but you need to kind of take that responsibility to educate yourself, to have people around you, to guide you the right way, to actually use it for your benefit, not your detriment, right? Because it can happen both ways, and it does to a lot of
0: people. 100%. So, mate, in terms of like, like how long it would usually take to receive the money after you get a loan approved... Can you just give us a quick rundown on literally like the time so like investors know or new investors know what they can expect?
1: It depends on what you're applying for. So if you're applying for, say, a car loan, if you've got the car ready to go, expect you'll have the money in between one to five days. If you don't have the car, well, you'll get the money when the car's available, right? Uh, If you're buying a residential property, typically between four and six weeks. Right, That's the settlement period. So if you apply today, yes, it might get approved quickly or or slowly, but the money doesn't exchange hands until settlement happens. Settlement is when the transfer of the existing title will get moved to your name. And that is subject to the contract of sale. And typically, depending on what state it is, that's four to six weeks. It can extend. It can be 90 days. Sometimes I've seen six-month settlements, but typically that's the process. If you're applying for, if you already own the property and you want equity release, So you're essentially applying for equity that you have as cash or consolidation, paying off other debts, then that can vary. So I'd say probably the fastest you'll probably be able to do it would be around two weeks, I'd say. But realistically, it can be done faster depending on the bank. If they already have a mortgage, there's no new mortgage required. There's no transfer of title. It's just prove the loan, sign the documents, nominate the bank account. Here it is, done. So that can be done in a few days. Some bank can take longer. It can take, you know, if they have to do a valuation on the property, they need wet signatures and documents. That might push it out a bit longer, maybe three weeks, possibly four weeks, something like that. You just have to determine what, if it's about the time frame, then you may not get the best rate. Sometimes the ones that offer the yeah. best rate are going to be the slowest because the more applications they have, the slower they are. And usually the more applications they have is because yeah, they're the course. cheaper. Right? So, it's like you can't have it all. If you yeah. want it all, well, you can't have it. Pick one. What's your priority? If you want fast? Pay a little bit more on the rate. If you want cheap, wait a bit longer.
0: Yeah, like private finance. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Private finance, perfect example. You have that same day sometimes. Literally same day for like a million dollars or more, but you'll pay 20% interest yeah. And,
0: rate. Yeah, I spoke to a private financer recently, a couple months ago, and they're like, yeah, okay, we can do it for 20%. It's like 20%? Holy but Jesus. It's a good business to be in private finance right now mm. since interest rates have gone up.
1: Yeah. If I can avoid private finance, I will. But sometimes it's a, it's a necessary product depending on the circumstances.
0: hundred percent. So, mate, in terms of like setting up offset accounts, back in the day, offset accounts were like a very, very good strategy or it was made out to be a very good strategy. Can you just like give us your opinion on do they really make a big difference on setting up an offset account to try and pay down your loan quicker. you know, Obviously, you're offsetting the interest of your loan, which is great. But if you have no money in the offset account, it's pretty much pointless. When does the offset account really make a big difference? And should the listeners set one up?
1: Okay. With an offset account, they typically have an annual fee attached to them or a monthly fee, depending on the bank. And the main thing is if you're able to offset the loan more than the cost of that annual fee and save on interest more than that, then it's probably worth it. But if you can't, and because you don't have access to capital, it's just gonna be another cost, an ongoing cost, an unnecessary cost. And depending on the bank or the lender, some of them actually give you a bigger discount on your interest rate because you chose the offset product. So if you chose a basic product which doesn't have offset and only has redraw, you're actually paying a higher interest rate. So you need to work out how much interest will I pay on the basic loan with no annual fee no offset and how much interest will i pay with the offset loan and including the annual fee add those two up which one am i better off paying so sometimes the offset loan makes more sense because you get that additional discount so even if you don't have extra funds to offset you're still better off because if you pick the basic one you're paying higher interest which kind of trumps the annual fee anyway but then if you go to a, another bank they'll have the exact same interest rate whether it's a basic loan or whether it's an offset loan. And the only difference is the offset loan you pay an annual fee. So if you're picking a bank like that and you don't have access to capital, when I'm saying 10 grand, 20 grand, 30, et cetera, if you don't have access to that and you won't, like you're exhausting every cent that you have in order to buy this property, well, what exactly are you offsetting? Your income, right? Your income will obviously have to pay the mortgage, you have to pay your outgoing costs, and whatever's left, you can offset the loan. But if that's only 100 bucks a month or a few hundred dollars, Well, if you're paying 400 bucks a year for the offset account, you might as well just go for a basic loan that only has variable basic loan because then you can just put extra funds into the loan and has the same net effect as an offset account. So you're actually just paying, reducing your interest each month. And now you just don't have an annual fee. That's what I would recommend if you don't have access to capital. But a lot of people do have access to capital or they have their parents even. I've seen that where people are like, well, my parents have got a house paid off and they're sitting on half a million dollars worth of cash. Well, they can actually park that money in my offset account and whenever they need it, they can access it. So now they're actually reducing their interest on their home loan from their parents' money because they've got an offset and the parents are the ones that have access to it, not them. I mean, of course, they can still withdraw it, but typically there's a trust factor when you do that, right? And so now they're getting the benefit of an offset. But if they had redraw, it's probably more risky for the parents to do that. When you don't have offset, technically it's the bank's money. So you talked earlier about economic conditions. Well, one of them is hypothetically you had a million dollars loan and you had no offset account and you put $500,000 of your own money into the loan. You would have 500000 available in redraw and you would owe 500000 But technically that's the bank's money. They're allowing you to have access to the money as a redraw facility. However, for all intensive purposes, that's a principal payment. So if there's a, a run on the banks, they can say, sorry, you paid back that money. It's no longer accessible by redraw and you still owe us 500,000. And they're like, hey, what happened to my other 500? Well, you decided to put it into the loan. You've paid that back off the principal. Now we've decided we need that capital and now you don't have access to it. So that's the risk when you don't have an offset. If you have an offset, it's a bank account. It's your money. So you, you have a sitting an offset There's a run on the banks. Bank can't just say, hey, we need to withdraw the money from the offset and put it into the loan. Like, nah, they can't do that. It's your bank. It's your money. So it is protected in that respect by sitting in an offset because it's essentially like a transactional account. It's not necessarily paying to
0: the loan. What about like offsets? Obviously, there's a difference between if you have a principal and interest loan to an interest-only loan. Can you just explain to us like the difference between having an offset attached to an interest-only loan compared to having an offset attached to a principal and interest loan?
1: It's a really good question because this comes up quite a lot where I have to explain it to many people. So I'll try to explain it the best way I can because then I can just say, hey, listen to this, and then this will explain it to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So same example, million dollars. You have a million-dollar loan and the loan is principal and interest, P&O. If you put $500,000 in an offset account, you're paying interest on $500,000, but you still owe a million. But your repayments are still based on what you owe because you owe a million. So you're making p and I repayments on a million dollars, even though you don't owe a million, hypothetically, you only owe five a million because you're not paying it to the loan. So you're not offsetting. You're only offsetting the interest. You're not actually paying back the principal. So the bank still expects you to make principal payments on a million dollars. And that's where people always get a bit frustrated because they're like, I only owe five hundred, but I'm still making higher repayments. Well, you can't have it both ways. In this instance, you can't say I want to make repayments on five hundred thousand while still having access to the other five hundred, because now you're saying that you haven't paid it back. It's like if you tell the bank I don't want access to the five hundred k anymore, it's your money. Then they'll do what's called reamortization. So they'll actually you move the money from offset, you put it into the loan, and then they'll re-amortize on 500,000 and recalculate your repayments over the remaining term. Then you'll get lower repayments. But now if you ever wanted access to the 500K again, you need to apply for it again, go through the loan process, right? Borrowing capacity, credit history, all of that. If you did interest only, this is where you get the best of both worlds in that if you have a million dollars and the loan is interest only, you're paying interest only, that's it, right? Each month the bank's minimum requirement is that you pay interest. If you put $500,000 into an offset account, then your interest is dropping. Right, the interest will change because now you're getting your your interest is calculated on 500,000, so therefore your minimum repayment is interest on 500,000. So you're not paying interest on the money that's offset anymore. So the 500k interest free essentially and the other 500k you're paying interest. So then you're getting the best of both worlds because now you have, still have access to 500k and your minimum repayment has dropped based on the remaining balance, even though you still owe a million technically because the interest is being offset the actual interest charge has dropped. So your repayment has dropped. And also the other misconception is that if you're paying interest only, you can't pay principal. Well, that's not true. You can pay principal, but you've got the choice to pay principal yep. when you want to pay it, not when the bank wants you to pay it. So you can still make extra payments, pay it straight to the loan, not to the offset at any given time. You can do it in lump sum, weekly, monthly, whatever it is. The only caveat, I guess, is that you have to then pay a higher interest rate typically mm. for interest only loans. But, I think that the benefit can outweigh the cost. Uh, the other detriment of interest-only, it's not really about your question, but I thought I'd mention it, is that it impacts your borrowing capacity sometimes. So if you get an interest-only loan, then your borrowing capacity is at a detriment the longer the interest-only term. So if you take it out for five years, then that's affecting your borrowing capacity for regular residential consumer lending. Any consumer lending at this point, typically if it's a bank, Because they're going to look at your principal and interest remaining term when they calculate repayments. So if you did a 30-year loan term, you did a five-year interest only, you've got 25 years left. So they're calculating your uh, stress testing your repayments at 25 years P&I, principal and interest. Versus if you say did P&I from the beginning, 30 years, you've stretched it over 30, your minimum repayment is lower, they're stress testing 30. So now you're able to borrow more. That's the only downfall, I guess. So what I try to do with my customers is typically go for a two or a three-year interest-only max because let's face it, you're not really going to stick to that bank for five years. You're probably going to refinance in that time anyway. So that gives you the opportunity to then refinance, restructure, and go back to interest-only again for another two years, another three years.
0: That's exactly the same thing I tell our clients at policy Property like, why would I go interest only? Why wouldn't I just go P&I and I can start paying the property off? And I'm like, well, you go interest only because it gives you the option if you want to pay principal off. So you might set it up so you pay, you're only paying interest and then you can pay the principal into the loan. But then one month, you might have some huge expense. You might need an operation or something and you're not required to pay the principal. So you have that flexibility going forward to have lowest repayments possible now and if you want to, you can set it up with a 10-year pay-down plan. So you are paying the principal off. It's just not required from the bank.
1: Exactly. I would put it exactly the same way as you. You want to have less financial pressure. Mm-hmm. It's not just that. You might have a change in circumstances. One of you stops working, you and your partner. The other one, you have a baby. One goes part-time. So now all of a sudden, what your loan got approved that to pay principal and interest well. You're not in a position. You don't want to have to call the bank and say, yeah. shit, I can't afford it. I'm on financial hardship. So paying interest makes it manageable and then go back to principal later. And the other misconception is that you can switch to interest only whenever you want. No, you can't. So a lot of times people will apply. <laughs> They'll apply for P&I and like oh, I just got interest only. Call the bank. Can I get interest only? Uh, yeah, you can. But you, need to apply for a brand. you need to apply for a new application. They're like, what? And in the back of the head, I can't because I'm yeah, unemployed now, yeah. right? But they won't say that. But you can do it the other way. So if you start at interest only, and then at one point, you know, you sell some assets, you get some pay increases, you're like, I don't want to pay interest only anymore. I want to actually pay off to principal. If it was really that important to you, and you wanted to see the minimum payment changed, you could call the bank and say, please switch me to P&I. And they will do that, and they'll give you a lower rate. No financial assessment required, no application required, no documents, just do it over the phone. But the other way, if you want to go from principal and interest to interest only, nah, they have to reassess everything. So that's why better to start interest only, switch it the other way than Otherwise, you might end up in a position where you can't go to interest only Yeah, because if
0: you're paying interest <laughs> you? only and you're like, hey, I want to um, change to P&I and that bank's like, okay, pay me more, sweet. Of course, they're going to like say, yeah, do it, do it. Come, yeah. come in, come on, pay me more. But the other way around, it's like, hey, you that's want to like, you're paying this yeah. and now you want to pay a lot lower price? And now like, you want to pay on, less? Why are we doing that? Yeah. Let's check. Yeah. Let's just check the situation. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it.
1: Yeah. So you owe your brother for money and you have be paying a thousand bucks a month. Hey, can I? <laughs> Pay 500 bucks a month from now on. Why? Uh, no reason, just to manage cash flow. <laughs>
0: Give me back yeah. my money. <laughs> so we thought, I just want to also uh, touch right. base on the like um, paying with an offset account with paying the P&I. So I just want to make sure like this is how I think about it in my head. So the actual repayments don't actually change if you have money in an offset for a P&I. It's just, it just changes what portion you are actually paying down. So if you have money in the offset, then you're paying down more of the principal. But your actual interest repayment does not change. And if you have no money in that offset, then you're paying more interest. So that's, in my mind, that's how it works. That's how I understand it.
1: No, no, no. That's exactly how I explain it. It's like, if you imagine you're making the same minimum repayment when you have money in offset, well, then because the interest is reducing each month, because you remember interest accrues daily and charges monthly, So the more often you put money into the offset and the more amount you put in the offset will reduce the interest on your monthly due date every single month. And then when you see that interest drop but your repayment is still the same, then more of your payment will go towards the principal rather than the interest. So then you're essentially paying off the loan faster. So instead of 30 years, by having money in offset, you might pay it off in say 25 years or 20 years depending how much you keep adding in there. That's how it works. But yeah, you explained exactly the right way. What about
0: splitting the mortgage, mate? I've done this before in the past where I've had a portion that's a fixed rate and I've also had a smaller portion that's variable. And that's basically like to limit my risk against inflation uh, interest changes in the market. Can you just explain like how splitting the mortgage can be a good strategy when you first buy a property?
1: Yeah, yeah. So look, it's very common that people split their loans. I usually tell... Talk to my clients about splitting it to get the best of both worlds, part fixed with limited risk, part variable with more flexibility, but more risk in terms of uh, rate increases. But at the moment, it's a time in the market where the fixed rate's higher than your variable. So by doing that, you're kind of gambling to an extent. You're sort of trying to time the market and say, hey, I want certainty. And for that certainty, I'm willing to pay a premium because just in case rates go higher, I want to know that I've locked in my rate even though because the variable rate will then go higher than the fixed. So then at that point in the future, if that happens, then I'm going to be winning essentially. At the moment, I'm losing. I'm taking short-term loss with the chance that I'm going to get a gain if the variable rates surpass the fixed rates. So that's the time in the market that we're in. If someone wants to do that, there's no guarantee that the variable rates will keep going higher than the fixed. And where that can work against you is if the variable rates drop. Because say next year they start dropping rates and you fix the majority of your loan. Well, you're in a bit of a, in a pickle, uh, so to say. Because if you want to get out of the loan, because say you're, you you fix it at say, I don't know, six and a half percent and the variable rate drops to say five. And you're like, damn it. I want to get five percent rate, but I'm stuck on six and a half for the next two years. So you say to the bank, I want to get out of the loan. I want to switch it to variable. And they say, you can't do that, but now you have to pay break costs. And those break costs can be significant. It can be tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. So then you'll just say, well, I'm not going to pay $10,000 in break fees. I'm just going to stick it out for the next two years and pay 6.5%. So by having the loan split, then at least you're getting the benefit of the reduced variable rates for some of your loan, right? So then you're not sort of thinking, damn it, I'm stuck paying fixed for this whole two, three years. Some of it's variable, so you're still benefiting somewhere when it drops. The other thing is the flexibility on variable loan. So if it's variable, yes, it can fluctuate up and down. However, you can pay it off at any given time without any restriction, without any limitation. Like we talked about paying extra payments and you can have an offset account. Typically, if you have a fixed loan, you can't have an offset account. There's only like two or three banks that offer offset on a fixed loan, but the majority of them don't. So therefore, you've got the flexibility of offsetting, making large principal payments when you want, putting money in, redrawing it out, all that interest-only offset will we talked about. If it's variable, you can do all of that. If it's fixed, you no, can't do any of it. The maximum you can pay extra is like 10 grand a year. And anything more than that, they can penalize you and say, sorry, you've, you've breached your contract. You told us you're going to lock this fixed rate in. And now we have to charge your break cost to break your loan. That's, I guess, the downfall of having too much of your loan fixed. It leaves you without the flexibility. And if rates drop, you're not getting the lower rate and you have no offset account linked to it typically. So, yeah, I think obviously the certainty part, you need to work out your budget for your household. And if if you literally cannot afford it, and I have customers like this where they're like, no, I've had fixed before. I just want to know that this is my repayment. I don't care if rates go up or down. I just need to know that I can budget and know that if I can afford X amount every single month for the next three years or two years, whatever, I'm happy. I can save, I can pay back debt and that's fine. We can do a fixed loan and we can only have a small amount variable, 20 grand, 30 grand, up to whatever amount you believe you can offset during that term. So in the two years, if you think you can save 20 grand, then have a 20 grand variable loan because then you can pay that off and still have access to it as redraw, and have the flexibility to pay it down. But if you did everything fixed and all of a sudden you had all this extra cash and you're limited in terms of where you can put it because otherwise you're going to lose your fixed rate or break the loan, well, you probably should have had some of a variable split loan.
0: Make sense? Yeah, 100%. And this is what, because we're at interest rates where it's like the average norm. So it's actually pretty uncertain whether you should fix or you should just wait. Personally, I'm not going to be fixing any of my loans for the foreseeable future because I do believe that interest rates will come back slightly, but I think they'll stay around this level for a while now because this is the average. It comes back down to when interest rates are very, very low, people were fixing and that's created the mortgage cliff. Can you just explain what that is and how impactful that is for like a lot of Australians?
1: Yeah, so obviously during that period of time, when interest rates were really low, people were fixing at you know two percent below two percent, and the mortgage cliff is that when the loan comes off a of fixed in that period of time, they're going to now go to a variable rate that's you know six percent or more, and that's a massive shock to the system because their repayments on six percent versus two percent are significant, and their household may not be able to afford that. And that's assuming their circumstances haven't changed. If they've gone worse, less income, and obviously we have inflation and cost of living has gone up, so maybe there's less disposable income, that's a a scary place to be because now your loan is unaffordable. So then if you can't afford to keep the house, all you can do is sell it. And then what are you going to do, rent or move to another area to buy somewhere cheaper and still paying a higher interest rate, just less of a loan amount? But also the mortgage prison, another term that's sort of thrown around, that's if you're stuck with that bank. So if you're, Mm. because remember, they can't call the loan in. They can't say now that you're on six and a half percent and you, on paper, you could only afford, you know, up to say four and a half when we assess the loan or five and a half. They can't just say now you need to pay us the loan back in full. They don't do that. The bank gave you a 30 year loan. So they kind of have to work with you based on what you can afford to repay. And if you're wanting to get a better interest rate because they have put you on, say, 6.5, but a competitor will give you, say, I don't know, 5.9 or something, well, you want to refinance. And logically, you think, well, if I'm paying 6.5 now and another bank's paying me 5.9, why can't I get the loan? Because it's lower. If I can show that I can pay the 6.5, then I should be able to get the loan for 5.9 because it's lower payment, right? Mm. But it's not as simple as that. The banks do a stress test, so they calculate 3% above the actual rate. So they're going to stress test your situation and say, all right, pay pay 5.9 on the new new loan. On the existing balance, you've had the same balance or it's come down slightly in the last two or three years. We're going to calculate that instead of calculating 5.9, we're going to calculate that at, what's that, 8.9. So can you afford the repayments at nearly 9%? Probably not. And because you can't, they can't approve the loan for you even though it's the exact same amount that you already owe. Mm. So that's the prison that you're in. Because you can't get a new loan to refinance, you're stuck with the same bank that originally let you the money. So you're at the control of whatever they want to charge you unless you sell. That's your only way out. The way they've tackled that so that people still can have an opportunity to refinance is four banks or five banks have come up with a a streamlined process with a special APRA ruling where they can use a 1% buffer instead of Mm. a 3% buffer. So if they can get a rate of say 59 they'll calculate it at 6.9. So if they can still show some level of affordability that stress test, then they can still refinance. But to be honest with you, I haven't done many of them. I've done like two. The most of people who are with a bank that they're in a mortgage prison, typically the banks have been flexible in giving them a competitive rate in terms of what the variable rate would be that the market is offering. So in a way they are in a prison, but the prison is giving them a rate that they would get anyway. So that's okay. It's only if that bank is not giving them a, a discount. If they're not matching other banks and they're just forcing them to pay a higher rate, that's when it's, it's obviously not a good situation to be in. But if they're willing to price it for you and bring the rate down to whatever the market's offering, then that's the best you're going to get to an extent, at least for this period of time. Because remember, if you're adding 3% buffer, well, then that means that you're protecting the market for rates to go up to 9%. But realistically, will they go up that high? What market conditions do we need to be in for that to happen? I don't know. You tell me. Like, if if people owe more than a million dollars, if they're paying nine percent, I'm pretty sure most people aren't going to be borrowing money anymore, and that's going to affect the economy at at large.
0: Yeah, there has to be like some sense in in the actual rate that they're putting on top of the rate that's already there. Like, because we were so low, because it was like literally like record low interest at two percent, three percent on top of that was actually pretty fair. It's actually probably a little bit under this. It probably should have been like 4% to get us 6% like where it could go. But there has to be a little bit of sense on like, okay, well, is it going to go to 9%? Probably not. We've already like have a huge cost of living right now. CPI is going down, although petrol prices are still up a little. But realistically, there has to be some sense saying it's probably not going to go to 9%. And if it is there's going to be some economic catastrophe again. Like it's just going to be way too much interest for people. And there's going to be some serious like ramifications from that. And there already have been, it hasn't been like as hugely widely reported, but people have been having to sell. People have been losing their houses. It's just not widely reported in terms of like where the interest rates could go. Now, if we're at like, you know, six or 7% for a commercial property, then the actual buffer they put on it should only be like 1% one or 1.5%. One it should be minimized like it has been with um, that product you're talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I think that's probably where things will go at some point next year where they realize that rates aren't going to go that high. So they're probably going to go across the board and only put a 1.5% buffer or 2% buffer maybe max to allow more people to borrow and to keep the economy moving. And one other thing I want to touch on, which was the, the least stock product, commercial property. So that's been a tough product to get across the line since we've had rate rises. Because of the rate rises, they've added on the stress test calculations on the way they calculate the interest coverage ratio. But one of the banks, and I won't tell you who that bank is because I need to determine your circumstances first, but one bank has just come out with a new lease stock product in the last two months. And it is basically blowing the other banks out of the water in terms of borrowing capacity. It's back to what it was. It's 1.5 times interest cover ratio on the actual rate. It's up to 65% LVR, and we're talking about rates between 6.54 and 6.59% 6. that we're getting right now. So if we're netting net 6.5% net, net yield, even 6.2 maybe on a commercial property, that should be enough to actually borrow 65%. LVR. So if you can get 65 at that rate, and at the moment there's a promo, I don't know how long that promo is going to be, but they're waiving, depending on which state you're in, I've noticed that they're actually waiving the application fee, which is up to 0.75% of the loan amount. So no application fee, and they're also covering the valuation cost as well. And you can imagine that could be two or three grand sometimes for commercial property. So essentially, next to nothing in fees, no serviceability assessment except for the rent, and you're getting 65% LVR. And remember... I also do equity release to cover that deposit as well. So, if you've got enough capacity to borrow a deposit, the 35% that you need, plus stamp duty, plus say buyer's agent fee, well, you could literally get 100% loan and otherwise wasn't possible because of your borrowing power. It won't be positive cash flow if you borrowed everything, but at least you're getting in, right? And if you've got access to that, that equity and that, you know, even if you've got some cash contribution, you know, I'm doing one at the moment for one and a half million. So the, the lo- max loan yeah, cool. amount is one and a half million for this product. So what's one and a half million? What sixty five percent on one and a half million? What's that? I don't know. I can't calculate it in my head right now, but that's getting them at least two point something yeah. million dollar property.
0: So it's a one and a half million dollar starting
1: deposit. No, one and a half million is sixty five percent. So the way I would calculate that is one and a half million divided by sixty five.
0: Okay.
1: Times it by a hundred.
0: So it's two three zero seven. Times it by
1: a hundred. So yeah, so two point three million dollar purchase price you can get as a purchase price and borrow one point five million on a lease stock loan. Yes, at sixty five percent. You'll have to uh,
0: share what bank is doing that with me off air because that sounds like an absolute ripper product. And if you want uh, Victor to also share how you can get some free money, give him a call. So mate, where can the listeners go to find out more about yourself? Okay, just for starters, there's no free money here. You have to pay interest and fees. (laughs) Free
1: money. <laughs> we all are free money don't we <laughs> listeners can find me at my website lagosfinancial.com.au or they can just google Lagos Financial they can also find me on my own podcast which is Debt to Financial Freedom you find that on YouTube as well as iTunes and Spotify and yeah look you can book in a, a free chat we can just get to see if your circumstances allow you to borrow there's no cost to have a chat with me And if we're the right fit to work together,
0: we can discuss where to go from there. All right, man. Well, that's a wrap. This has been the financial experts, Victor Lagos and Andrew Bean on the Financial Freedom Series. Make sure you go and uh, talk to Victor to get some free money. He's just handing it out. All right, guys. (laughs) See you, guys. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. (laughs) Bye.